Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Scaling New Heights podcast. During this episode, we will talk with Don Brolin. Don is a certified public accountant and the managing member of Powerful Accounting, LLC. Named top 25 most powerful women in accounting in 2012 through 2015, one of the top 40 under 40 by CPA Technology Magazine in 2009, Dawn is known for her hilarious presentation style. Dawn has been featured on MSNBC, Your Business, and has spoken it into its QuickBooks Connect, CPA Society shows, Scaling New Heights, and many other events for accountants and small business owners throughout the U.S. She is also an expert on fraud and forensic accountants. And also, she understands what it takes to grow a practice from the ground up, having been for many years a sole practitioner and now having a thriving CPA practice. Dawn, welcome to the podcast. Joe, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Dawn, I'm going to jump right into the first question because there is a lot to ask and you have a lot to share. Let's start with the session that you taught at Scaling New Heights on fraud, and I probably had a little touch of that forensic accounting that you're so good at, and I want to draw from some of the learning objectives of that breakout with this first question. How responsible are bookkeepers compared to CPAs or other certified professionals when it comes to ethics? Do the bookkeepers need to play a role here, or do they just say that's the CPA's job? Well, it's so interesting. Of course, ethics for all of us are critical. You know, everyone in every walk of life have got to have a standard of ethics that can be upheld to best serve the public. And that's what we're really here for as, as consultants, bookkeepers, CPAs. But the bookkeepers are on the front line. And the bookkeepers are the ones where, who we count on to be the most ethical people possible. Without their ethics and without their strategies around watching for unethical behavior, certainly we don't expect them to have unethical behavior, but we want them to also watch out for others who may be having it. And really their responsibility is to just absolutely critical to the industry. All right. So... And I agree with you completely. We're all playing for the same team when it comes to maintaining that ethical standard for our client's behavior, our professional standards. But, you know, when it comes to the client and sort of making sure that they're playing everything above board and they're not doing anything that maybe even inadvertently is going to get them in trouble. It may be unknowing or it could be on the part of somebody who's not the business owner and it needs to be detected. You know, what are some tips that you gave your folks in the breakout scaling back in May? You gave them some tips about internal controls and how to minimize the risk of fraud. Can you share a few of those? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, the key pieces that we talked about over and over and over again was even just the identification of a lack of internal control. And so we talked about being more aware. That was probably one of the biggest uh, conversations we had during our sessions. And the reason for that is, in a lot of cases, we're dealing with small businesses who don't have a large budget. And so internal controls are typically, even if they're a sole proprietor, they may just be themselves, an internal control where they've maybe exposed themselves to a subcontractor situation, and maybe they've given too much authority around someone who is outsourced. So we're not even talking about, you know, a company with 30 or 40 employees. Typically, a size like that, they've had to implement some internal controls, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But when you're talking about the smaller business, we 
as practitioners, the bookkeepers, a CPAs, it doesn't matter, consultants, people are going in as outsourced CFOs. The internal control process is meant to minimize risk. I don't think any of us expect that risk is eliminated entirely in any situation in life, right? And so in accounting, it's the same thing. So we talked about being aware and being more aware, even though we're not necessarily charged with that. So as an auditor, for instance, it's not our job to detect risk. Like it's not necessarily our job to detect a lack of internal controls, though we do. And so with bookkeepers and consultants and CFOs, it's so critical that we are aware and that we are assisting the business owners, regardless of our charge, to do so and watch for those internal controls and implement them. So that was one really big tip that I gave to them. And I would say another one which was really critical was that when you're coming in and working with these small businesses, we know to not expect or overwhelm them with a million internal controls because we'll go in and say, oh my goodness, look at this. We've got 60 internal controls we need to implement and so, hey business owner, here's a $50,000 engagement. Now that's scary. That'd be scary for me. So we want to make sure we're taking it one step at a time. Really important for us to say, hey, let's control the situation. We know there's a bunch of internal controls. We're seeing so many high-level risk areas for this business owner, but let's prioritize those risks and take them one at a time and implement an internal control. Well, and, and that's really in all of our dealings with our clients. We can choke them by trying to go from mediocre to great or bad to great overnight, you know, and, and we have to realize that it's a, it's a one step at a time process and it seems more invasive if we throw too much at them. It's too costly and it's too much to adopt and their people start pushing back. And so giving, I like that idea of giving them one internal control at a time. <laughs> and I right. think maybe the core one to start with is that segregation of duties. I'm sure you, you talked a lot about that in your breakout. It, uh, to me, that's table stakes. Um, Absolutely. You know, one person should not, just in case there's anybody listening that doesn't know what segregation of duties is, uh, if, if, some, if one person has check signing authority, they should not have bank rec authority. That right. way there's, there are always two pairs of eyeballs on it. And then once that sort of table stakes game is in place, then you can start putting in other measures and layering those one at a time. Right, and it's interesting. We have a really great client that we're working on right now as, as outsourced CFOs. We initially went in as really looking at the books and the books were a mess and, and you know, doing a cleanup job. And that's what the, the engagement began as, and that was back in around February of, of this year. And now, literally right now, we have transitioned from that portion into an, an outsourced CFO position implementing internal controls, of course, utilizing as much technology as possible to segregate those duties through approval processes, through bill.com, and, and for payments, and different things like that, you know, T-sheets, and various applications to implement those internal controls to ensure and minimize the risk that this client may have of, you know, so much money going out the door that, that is unnecessary, or too much control in one person's pocket. For instance, an employee staying late, always the last one out the door. That's suspicious to me, and there's something wrong with that. And the business owner thinks, oh, she's such a hard worker. She's staying late. That's wonderful. And I'm like, no, that's bad. Get a camera on that desk immediately. Uh, so that's nice. where, you know, that's where we that's come in. That's funny 
That's yeah. funny. So it's it's like putting on a healthy lens of skepticism because I'm a naturally trusting person too. And that would have been my gut reaction is, oh, what a hard worker. Maybe it was. I mean, maybe that was the case. Sure. But the but the camera will prove out. And, and cameras can be actual mounted cameras, which I think you were saying very literally, put a camera on that. Oh, I'm not but kidding. Then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. But then there could be other forms of, and I'm using air quotes here, you know, figure, figuratively speaking, cameras um, like the technologies you mentioned. And that's a really good point, Dawn, that internal controls don't just have to be about the segregation of the actual process that's operated in the office. There's a, now another form of segregation that's available to us, and it's through user roles and permissions and audit trails that that show the activity of people as they use and automate this accounting process through technologies. And you mentioned T-sheets for time, so T-sheets is going to not only just track the time, but it's not. It's going to be a lot harder to commit fraud with the timesheets because now with rules, with permissions, and I don't know if T-sheets has any form of audit tracking, but it's much it does, harder to absolutely. cover. It does. Okay. Yeah, so. and you know what's wonderful about that, Joe, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but one of the great things about it that, that I find to be so important is the fact that the, the, the tracking of the time, but the submission of the time by the employee makes a statement that the employee agrees with that time, and that's an internal control. That and it's also the, required for DCAA, required. right? Exactly. So, yeah, if you have the DCAA requirement, you meet it. If you don't, and it's arguable that if you're required to maintain DCAA compliance or not, you should kind of be DCAA compliant because it's a good standard, whether it's imposed on you by an outside company or imposed on your company by yourself. And, and you're saying that's just one example of how right. technology creates the audit trail, creates the approval processes, creates the logs, creates the rules, creates the permissions that tightens down the internal controls. Yeah, and you know, Joe, it's really interesting because the technology, we all, you know, we come to, to Scaling New Heights, which has just got the best technology solutions possible at your show, and we get, we get so wrapped up around, oh, you know, technology and subscriptions and, you know, oh, the cost associated and can they learn it, and, and I go from the angle of how can I solve and minimize the risk for my client with the next technology available? or help them improve their practice, which we're going to get into in a little while. But those technologies, we have to think of them from that internal control procedure base and not always about, you know, automation or efficiency. This is true, which is totally true. But that internal control, if, if people can turn the switch and add on that internal control thought process, you have a home run for your client. Right. And we do typically think of these technologies as efficiencies or accessibility or automation, but you've just put a very, very important value layer on top of them. And, you know, before we, we, we change gears here, because you taught two breakout segments, they're not sessions, they're some of the, sometimes they're entire tracks, but you taught on two topics, fraud and also moving your practice from solopreneur to, from entrepreneur to multi-practitioner. But before we change gears here, I want to make sure everybody listening to the podcast knows that the first two episodes of this podcast series are an interview with Frank Abagnale, fraud expert, uh, portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Catch Me If You Can. And so Frank, who is a you know 70-year-old gentleman at this point, I think is about his age, but anyway, he's now turned his entire life 
to the process of preventing fraud, and he's helping both consumers and businesses, anybody that, that interacts in any financial way um, and, and transacts business in any way to prevent fraud. And he details a lot of additional fraud prevention techniques that go all the way down to the type of copier that you use. Right. If you use the wrong kind of copier, it could create not necessarily a fraud issue, but it could create a situation where sensitive information gets into the wrong hands. So I encourage you to listen to those two episodes. Well, let's change gears for a second, Dawn, and let's get to this track that you taught at Scaling New Heights, which, which you approached me with and said, I've gone on this journey. I know what it takes to make the journey, and I want to teach other accounting professionals how to do this. And, and it's called Solopreneur to Employer. And, you know, and I've been I've known you now for 15 years and for much of that 15 years, you you were by yourself or maybe you had one employee or one contractor. And now you've got this thriving CPA practice. And I'm sure that journey was adventurous. Let's start with the internal controls. Right. Right. Are you are you know, are you eating your own dog food on that? Do you have internal controls in place? Of course we do, and we and we work on them every day, which is interesting, right? There's no end to internal controls, but yes, we have over the last four years gone from, um, you know, that was really four years ago is when I started the hardcore journey to go from just myself to having a team. And I don't ever say employees, and I don't ever say staff. I say I've got a team because every team member, it doesn't work without one of them. One of them falls off, we're a disaster, right? That, that's not totally true. But the internal control process for us has been uh, very eye-opening for me as the, you know, the CEO of the company. And understanding, in order for me to be able to actually be a CEO and not just a technician, which I still love. I still love to touch. I still want to be in there. I want to be in the dog seat all day long. But I also have to run a company. And so the transition from just being a technician to also being a CEO and erecting, I have to have these internal controls in place so that my company can run if I'm not there. And I love to use a, a great example, and I think, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this. You know, we moved from making my, I had two staff at the time, making them go into QuickBooks and book their time. And they were, they hated me. I don't blame them. They hated me because of my internal control function was enter your time into QuickBooks so that I can track your time and pay you properly and bill my clients and make sure that's all right. And so they would do that and they did an external Excel spreadsheet because they didn't want to log in and out of my QuickBooks file all the time. And they just, I put them through the ringer until I said, Oh, internal control, T-sheets, enter your time into T-sheets, you have to submit it to me, now I have real, you know, compliance driven, that was an internal control I implemented and took away a lot of pain at the same time, but I can do payroll in literally 10 minutes, I make them submit their time, that was an internal control we implemented, but that's one of them, and so through these internal controls that I've implemented, I had a, a little bit of an accident in January, and I was in bed, laid up for a week. Now, I know, Joe, if you know me and you've known me for 15 years, you know how well that went over. <laughs> um, so that's like putting, you know, a cat in a, in a little tiny box in a cage and expecting it to survive for a week. It was tough. But because I have specific internal controls, onboarding techniques for clients, 
So a new client would call in. What are the steps it takes to onboard a new client? What is my control over the onboarding process? So we've been working through that. So my team was able to onboard a client without me having to be directly involved. Those internal controls are critical for you as a practitioner and as a, as a person who's, I'm going to hire my first person. Okay. What is your employee, okay, for them they may say employee, what's your team onboarding process? You have to teach them your internal controls. What's that going to look like? Okay, here, here you go. Here's your computer. Get to work. Well, it doesn't work like that. If you have these systems of internal controls in place, they read about them, they learn about them, and your company is going to run more efficiently and at a lower risk level because you've implemented them. So, I mean, I know that was a kind of a long no, story. No, but, yeah, but, no, but what you're really saying is you're doing the comprehensive picture here. A lot of people start with technology in order to get workflow efficiency and standardization of process so the machine, so the machine will run without the direct intervention of the owner. And then we learned in the last uh, part of our conversation, the first part of our conversation, that, that that also has an internal controls layer that's really cool. It has an aspect right. a lot of people don't think about. And then since you have internal controls on the brain and you have fraud prevention on the brain, you're a forensic accountant, right? You're launching from employee number one to make sure that you're safe and secure and protected. And then in the process of that, you get workflow and automation. So it's just kind of funny coming or going, the technology and the workflow. That's both. Right. A lot of people think technology solves it all. It doesn't. Process by itself doesn't. But process plus technology is that double-edged sword that's going to get you all of the goodies that we've, we've just been talking about. But there's, I'll tell you, it's usually not process and it's usually not systems and it's usually not technology that stops someone from being a sole practitioner and taking the leap into becoming an employer, it's the fear of hiring. And I will Absolutely. tell you, Dawn, the biggest mistakes I have ever made, they're in two categories, but the biggest mistakes I have ever made are hiring the wrong people and hiring the wrong clients. If you take all the other collective mistakes I've made as a business owner, you combine them all together, they don't equal one of the mistakes with hiring the wrong person or hiring the wrong client. Those are, those are doozies. And everybody's so afraid of hiring the wrong person that they just never hire. But I understand you know how to hire the right people. What are your secrets? You know, it's really interesting because it takes. It took me a while. Maybe I'm slow. Um, <laughs> it took me a while to figure out the secret sauce. Okay, and I'm going to tell you what that is, and it's pretty simple. What it is is that we've heard it so many times, we're stale to it. Our brains don't take it in and soak it in like a sponge. But the number one thing you have to do is define your core values. And that sounds so corny and sounds so cliche, but without you knowing for yourself what your core values for your company are, you cannot hire one person because you have to define those in order to be able to weed through who you are hiring. Now, we've all made bad hires. I made, bad, I made a bad hire this year. They were in and out in 30 days. You know, that happens because you don't have a process. Well, guess what? Our hiring process was established. That it was actually February 1st of 2016. <laughs> we established that process because I said I would never do that again. Now, I feel there's a little bit of luck in the draw. And for me, I have I've been blessed by the people, my team. I wouldn't trade them. I would do this. If I had to do it all over again, I would pick the same people. And, and I thankfully, they fit into my core values. 
but the core values are critical. And of course, you know, loyalty is important, respect is important, and they, and they, you really have to believe in those things. So establishing a core value and hiring to those core values are critical. And understanding, here's another piece of the secret sauce, understanding what you need when you're hiring. Do I need another A-type person? Do I need another Dawn Brown-type personality? No, I'll kill them, right? So I, what I'm looking for is I'm looking, you know, when, when I'm hiring, I'm deciding. Maybe I do. Do I need a person in New Haven who's a Dawn Brown so I don't have to go there? Mm. So I know I've got a Dawn Brown absolute savvy. And, and explain to in, people in what you mean by that. You're talking personality types, and you said an A person, which yeah. you're calling as a type A but, you know, how do you determine a person's personality? Well, you know, there are tests out there, like the DISC test. Mm -hmm. um, there's, app, you know, there's various ways. So we, the DISC we one issue, is the one I love. The, the, that's D-I-S-C, folks. That's D-I-S-C. And there are various yeah. DISC assessment tests you can take online, and that will determine personality type. And then what I really like about it, Dawn, and you, you know this because you, you do it with your, your folks, is it is it differentiates between the natural and the adaptive styles because if people are in certain work environments they may behave or take on a personality over time to adapt to their environment but naturally natively they're uh they act differently and if you can give them a culture where they're free to be themselves then you're going to get a more authentic person and they're going to start acting more to their natural style and usually there's not a big sway between natural and adaptive but if you see a big sway, then you've got an area of unpredictability there that you just shouldn't hire against. So, and that's just one example, right. folks. D-I-S-C, Dawn's absolutely right. Run that test. Do it all on your current employees now. Maybe you have them in the we wrong did. role. You know? Exactly. Oh, my goodness, Joe. I love that you say that. We did that. We took the disc, we did the disc test, all of us. We took the assessment. And, and the, what's critical about that is it's not – if you hire and you say, okay, I'm looking for this type of person, and they, they score out to look like that's the person, and, and it turns out that they're not. It doesn't mean you're like, okay, you're gone. I don't need you. What you do is you say, oh, hey, you're a truck driver type personality. You know what that means? A truck driver personality stays in one lane. They can do one thing at a time. They drive. So if you have that type of person, and we all, oh my, my goodness, our, our, our firm has gotten it down. I know exactly what I can give to each one of my team members and who can handle what, what they're best at. Can they multi, not multitask because nobody can do that, but can they work on 15 to 20 clients during a week or can they only work on three? And if they can only work on three, make sure you give them three that has a, like a, a more, like a higher level client where they're working for 10 or 12 hours that week on the client. So we've realized that through those assessments, I've gotten better as a leader to understand them. Not what I want them to be, but who they are and putting them in a, and giving them the opportunity for success because they're in the right position. Yep. And that's critical. And you so, have to shift. Maybe you have to shift. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. And, you know, and, and Jim Collins does a really good job detailing this out in his book, Good to Great. And, and, and there are aspects of that book about hiring and role and servant leadership. But he uses the bus analogy and he says it's not just that you get the right people on the bus. Obviously, you have to do that, too, and get the wrong people off the bus. But you've got to get right. them in the right seats on the bus. Exactly. And that's that whole idea of the roles. And you cannot. And this is what I would encourage everybody listening to do. 
you cannot go from solopreneur to practitioner, to multi-practitioner, to hire people and have a team unless you have developed an org chart and the org chart has to be based on the role that the person will perform, then you hire to the role. You never hire a person right. to create a role. And then this is this thing I love about what Jim says, Jim Collins says, you know, he's my bud, we're on a first name basis, I call him Jim. <laughs> so what Jim, what Jim Collins says is, if you have the wrong person on your bus and you don't get them off the bus, oh. you are doing them an injustice. That, but we'll keep them on the bus because we're afraid of that momentary negative experience. But he says that momentary negative experience passes, and then they'll find the right bus once you free them up to do it. And Dawn, it's amazing how every single time I've had to, either because of elimination of role or because of non-cultural fit or because of a performance problem, every time I've had to say you know, to a team member that you know, we've come to the end of our journey, um, it's amazing how they always land in some incredible place. Maybe not as fast as they wanted or I wanted, because I like to keep up with them. I like to make sure they were, they're okay. I follow them on LinkedIn, right. and I breathe a sigh of relief when they get to a happy place. And it's amazing how they always find this perfect place for themselves, and they're better right. off as a result of me releasing them, freeing them up. You know. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, we, and one of the things, like, I love your point, culture, too. So your culture on a bus, if you're keeping that person on the bus, pe people, other people are getting miserable. You know, it's kind of like, okay, some people are cold and some people are hot and put the air conditioning on and take it back off again. Well, you've got that person on the bus. So I have found when we have had to let people go, sometimes the bus actually goes faster. You know, a little bit less weight on the bus and, and the bus is going faster and it has excelled the practice rather than, and it kind of, you know, stagnated the practice for a little bit until we, we had this, you know, had this removal or whatever, and, and it was better, definitely better for the other person, and you never want anyone to be unhappy. You know, that's one of the biggest things. We want everyone to be happy, and, and it's okay if we as a CEO are unhappy. Like, that's okay, because we, you know, that's our job. But we really want the team to thrive and be happy. As a matter of fact, we just went on a team-building excursion on Monday. We chartered a boat, went across to Sag Harbor, had a day on the boat just to recharge our batteries. And how, I mean, we had a blast, the memories, the fun, you know, we saw each other as real people, and you've got to do those kind of things. And we have remote staff, uh, you know, Tracy came up from D.C., and we have Sharon who's moving to North Carolina, she's still on team, Wendy works from home most of the time, four others are in the office, but we get to talk, but we don't see each other, so we're like, charter a boat, let's go. We're going to have some fun. You've got to develop that culture depending upon how that hiring is going to go. And I would say one more thing, Joe. I know, and I, you know, I could talk, I'll talk to you for seven hours, but <laughs> I will say, which is great because I'll do it. One other thing that's really important, I think this is one of the other pieces of the krill sauce, is when you are hiring, especially if you're hiring in a technician role, that you establish your minimum, I'll call it minimum system requirements, just like a computer. You have to have this minimum standard of where you believe they need to at least start at. Now, I'm going to use, for example, certified bookkeeper. So my team, not everybody on my team, has an accounting degree. But I require that be, they become certified bookkeepers because I believe in certifications. That's just me. Not everybody yeah. believes in that. I do. 
and that's just I can and I have the freedom to do that. So I say you have to be a certified bookkeeper. If you don't come on as a certified bookkeeper, you have to give submit an education plan, and we have to have a plan for that, which is a critical piece. If you are hiring technicians, have an education plan that you set the expectation so that there's no hard feelings. I've done it the wrong way. It sucks. I want you to get an education plan for minimum system requirements for those people. How long is it going to take till they're certified in the software? How long is it going to take until they're part of, you know, whatever it is that you set for systems for that technology person? Uh, but they, for, from an education perspective, set the minimum requirements before you hire them and make sure they know before they take the job. All right, so let me just kind of put a bow on this thing because, you know, you're right. This topic, I mean, you taught for hundreds and hundreds of minutes, and that's, that's an educator is always going to talk in terms of minutes because it's a 50-minute credit hour. But I think you talked for 200 or 400 minutes on this topic. We can't possibly cover all of it here. But just to kind of summarize what Dawn has said here, folks, she said, if you want to take the plunge and go into a hiring model, and, and I do encourage you to do that or at least to explore it, because it's a way of, of expanding your ability to fulfill your vision as a practice. It's a way for you to service more small businesses, and it's a way for you to stabilize your economic position, even though it's a little bit more economic risk, especially at the outside. So what Dawn is saying is start with sort of the container, if you will. Get the processes in place. Get the procedures in place. Get the technology in place that the person will use once they're on board so that you don't have friction from day one and you have internal controls from day one. Then focus on hiring the right person. And Dawn recommended that we use a DISC assessment for that. I couldn't agree more. And then hire the person to the role, not just their personality type, but then Dawn just finished out with their qualifications so that by personality and qualification, they fit the role and they can thrive, and you've set them up for success. And then we talked about when somebody doesn't fit the role, you have to have the courage to fire. You have to have the courage to fire any unhealthy relationship in your practice. We talked about firing the team member, but that would also come down to firing the clients because clients and team, they all create that single culture, and at the end of the day, they're all on the same bus. So, Dawn, we've covered a tremendous amount here today from how to help our clients to prevent fraud and risk of loss due to embezzlement. And then we talked about how we can leverage our resources better through a multi-practitioner practice. It has been great having you here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Joe, as always, it's my pleasure and my honor to participate in anything you're doing. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, it's been great having you here. And to everybody tuned in, we want to thank you for tuning in to today's podcast and our conversation with Don Rowland. For more information about today's episode, to explore other episodes in this podcast series, or to learn more about our annual conference, visit woodard.com. That's W-O-O-D-A-R-D.com. As always, we encourage you to stay tuned, stay connected, never stop learning, and scale new heights.